my daughter brought up a banner that she made, kind of impromptu. That was, that was pretty sweet. Um, it's not like a pastor pushing his kid in front of everybody. It's more like you have to read the things she wrote on that sign. It's, it's delightful, it's heartwarming, and it's very funny as well. So um, there goes my water bottle. I am preaching a sermon that I said I would preach last week. I said last week we're preaching a sermon, and it's kind of like the week after Easter sermon. It's an idea. The idea sort of is a bunch of people come on Easter, and you're like, hey, come on, if you like this, come on back. And then they come back the next week, and you have a message that's, that's geared towards folks that are maybe checking out Christianity. But as I was writing the message and thinking about it, I became more and more convinced that this is an important thing for those of us that are followers of Jesus, that have been around the church for a while, to reflect on. And that is the question, what a Christian isn't. What a Christian isn't. So that's kind of the sermon today. There are a million things we could talk about, and we will not be talking about all of those millions of things. But um, when you think about it, this, this thought occurred to me, or it sort of struck me, about a year ago. As many of you know, I teach um, I'm a professor full-time, and so I teach students, normally undergraduate students, and I teach these larger seminar classes, these hundred-level classes, sort of survey of the New Testament or um, history courses, things like that. And I realized something, that in the moment, historical moment that we're sort of in together, we are no longer... The, the upcoming generations are no longer naturally connected to the church, meaning uh, the baby boomers, the baby boomers, sort of the post-World War II babies that were being born, many of them, and many of you who are baby boomers, there was some connection to church. You, your parents took you, you had a grandma that took you. It was sort of in the fabric of culture. You go to church on Sunday. And then uh, the Gen Xers, it was maybe more of a question mark whether or not their parents took them to church. And then with millennials and Generation Z or Generation I or whatever they've been called, uh, it's, many of them have just not been around the church or even sort of what we might call a Christian communities. And where are the ideas about Christians coming from? Where are they getting these ideas from? This really is sort of a cultural thought I was having. Um, I suspect that for most people running around in our world today, uh, the primary image of what a Christian is most likely comes from maybe what they've seen in media, like the images that they've seen in the media. I mean, how many of you... Like, I think I know a lot about a courtroom and a trial scene, right? I know how a trial scene goes. I know the drama of a trial scene. I object! Special witness is called. And it's so exciting. And then I go to children's court with my wife. As Jez mentioned, we're foster parents, so we're in children's court quite a bit. And I'm sitting in there, and I'm, like, ready for, for the judge to look up and say, will the foster father please say a word? And I'll stand up, and I'll have my moment, and I'll be like, search your hearts, court! Search your hearts. Thank you. And I'll sit down and there'll be like a, a slow, like the stenographer will start clapping. And then all of a sudden the whole, it's like, ah. Oh. And instead you go into court and it's like, they don't look up from their desks. They just basically quote this like legalese that sounds like an iTunes agreement. You know, the one you all agree to sign. By the, by the way, do you even know what's in there? I mean, it could say, I sell my soul to the devil. And you're like, I agree. Give me my song. Just a warning. That's a separate sermon. It's just a warning for you. 
And it's like completely different than what the reality of court is because I've seen it on TV or I've been exposed to it. In, all, in the world we're living in, it just a, this is something for you who are maybe looking over the fence at Christianity. And I suspect most people here that have been around community, I see a lot of familiar faces. For us to remember that a lot of people, the image or idea that they have of what a Christian is, is coming from some of these caricatures of what Christians are as seen on TV or as seen in social media or other contexts. So like, like the popular one I think of, and uh, Chris Iomo, my best friend is here, was also socialized on The Simpsons, right? So you think Ned Flanders, right? Everyone know Ned Flanders? Like, haddly doodly neighbor. He's just like this Christian neighbor who's super, super morally uh, uh, rigid and, and kind of no sense of humor and kind of stupid, Ned Flanders. Or more popularly, probably... Uh, who, who watches The Office in here? The Office. Any Office fans? Yeah, yeah, to claim it. Claim it. Exactly. It's like my students right now, that show has had a resurgence. They are all addicted to it. They don't read the books I give them to read. They just watch, binge watch The Office. But like Angela from The Office, this character who, she's a Christian on the show, but she's like one of the most cruel people, hyper-judgmental, very bland, and basically known for what she's against. So these kinds of images or when I think about um, like horror movies, there's always that weird sort of deviant uh, priest-pastor figure. Like whenever there's a pastor, it always there's something dark about this pastor, something evil about them. And it turns out they're like a serial killer or something like that. Or preachers always have, it doesn't matter what context, if there's a church in a movie or on a show. It's always has to have stained glass windows, right? Stained glass windows. And there's got to be a collar on the preacher. It's like a non-denominational or ambiguously affiliated church, but they have the whole robe and all that stuff. So there's these images of what a Christian is that kind of come through in popular media. And then there's also like other venues. For example, televangelists. So a lot of folks, like my grandpa, I think his primary source for Christians is like our family and then the televangelists. And uh, you have the you know, expensive toupee, golden throne, private jet, right? Get, make sure the pastor gets rich if you want to get rich. Which is, by the way, our next sermon series we're going to be doing, Bill and I are putting together, make sure the pastor gets rich so you can get rich. Be blessed if you want a blessing, right? Um, preach it. So, so there, are, there are these televangelists or, or, or for example, the, the image of Christianity that comes up in political discourse, right? Where there's this like, we're the moral majority or we are a, a political, but we're like a, we're pushing an agenda, whatever that agenda is, may, may or may not have anything to do with Jesus, but they kind of put a Jesus spray tan on it and then they sell it as like, yes, this is what Christians are. So people see Christians as a, as a voting block. And so you're identified by where typically Christians vote or don't vote. Um, and then there's that guy. There's that, there's that guy that always has the bullhorn, right? The bullhorn guy. Is it bullhorn or blowhorn? Raise your hand for bullhorn. Raise your hand if you think it's blowhorn. I've been wrong this whole time. Thank you. Maybe it's a generational thing. I don't know. I've been wrong this whole time. The bullhorn guy, right? And he's like at every major event, sporting event, Hollywood and Highland, he's got it set up. The bullhorn is going, right? Now, I don't know how y'all feel about gun control. I know we have a real mixed political group here, so I'm sure there are all sorts of opinions on it. But like, I seriously think there should be bullhorn 
control. Like, you need to do a background check. Like, are you a Christian? Yes. I'm sorry. I cannot sell you this bullhorn. I would love to, but I can't. So I'm all for that form of discrimination. So these pictures of what a Christian, these caricatures of a Christian, um, sort of this cocktail of what one is. And oftentimes people don't want to affiliate because of what they think it is, right? I don't even want to come near that. For those of us that are followers of Jesus, which is, I think, a lot of folks in here, I think it's important to remember this because there is something powerful and a powerful opportunity that you have as a follower of Jesus, and that is to be a counter-narrative. Now, this isn't culture war. I'm not talking about running around fighting everybody about, well, you think that's a Christian? Well, you're wrong. Let me tell you what a Christian is. Instead, it's to live out and model for people and be that weird, different Christian where folks might say, yeah, I know Christians are judgmental, closed-minded, kind of stupid, no sense of humor, they don't do anything fun. Eh, But then there's Bill. I mean, he's cool. He's different. But, you know, everyone else, though, right? And the more and more we're able to bring what it looks like to follow Jesus. And we're able to bring the love, the grace-saturated life of a Jesus follower, the more and more people are going to actually see up close and personal, wow, nice mustache, by the way, I just noticed. That, that right there is what I'm talking about. People will be able to see someone like Joe and go, like, I know Joe loves me. I know he cares for me. I know he's funny. I know he, he actually is highly intelligent or... Uh, whatever else it is, great mustache. So, this message is also for all of us to remember that. Okay, so the term, the sermon title, as promised, is what a Christian isn't, isn't what we are not, what a Christian is not, and it's an arbitrary list. I picked three things. I could have picked 30 things, right? So it's just a kind of a random grab bag of of items. I tried to pick two or three things that I think are the most misunderstood by those maybe looking over the fence at Christianity and by us as followers of Jesus. And I've picked three sermon points, and I'm only going to preach two of them. That's right, two of them. A buddy of mine does like this two-thirds diet. Has anyone done that before? Two-thirds diet? It's like a calorie control mechanism. No one's done that before. Okay, so it's like you make a meal, and then you only eat, you take one-third of it, and you set it aside, and you eat the rest of it. Anyone done that? Okay, no. Well, he's a weirdo. So, so the, this sermon, it's like, I know my budget. I know I do not want to go 45 minutes or 40 minutes, so guess what? I took one whole point last night. I said, James, you get rid of that point, and you just preach two of them. And so I feel free, people, this morning. I feel free to preach my two points. A lot of energy up at the Norris today. A lot of energy. <laughs> All right. What Christians aren't? What's the first one? Okay, what Christians aren't? So the first point I put down, I hope it matches your outline. Maybe it doesn't. We are not. Christians aren't the protectors of a belief system. We're called into a bigger story. Christians aren't the protectors of a belief system We're called into a bigger story. Think about that for 30 seconds. Or 10 seconds while I wet my whistle.
to limit ourselves. Now, this is interesting because you go, well, what are you talking about? Of course there's a belief system. There's a worldview. There's a set of things that Christians will give cognitive assent to and say, I agree with this, 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 and this. This is true about God. This is true about reality. This is true about the human predicament, blah, 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 blah. All that stuff is totally true. Absolutely. So I say this a lot. I use this phrase a lot. We're not less than people with a robust belief system. We're so much more than that. We're captured by a story. To limit Christianity or what a Christian is to someone that that, um, holds to a belief system is to massively undersell it. Is to massively undersell it. It's like imagine um, in 1977 describing to someone a movie you just saw. And they go, what is that movie? Oh, it was by this, uh, by this uh, director, George Lucas. And it was like about like spaceships and aliens. And you're going, wait, are you talking about Star Wars? Like, I'm sorry, that is not just about spaceships and aliens. Yes, it has spaceships and aliens, but it's Star Wars. It's something so much bigger, so much more. Or, or it's like sort of saying, like, oh, we stayed at this really cute hotel on the beach this weekend. It's called the Montage in Laguna Beach, right? You're thinking like, no, that is not a cute little cottage on the beach. That is the Montage. That is like my entire 401k right now spent in a weekend, okay? That is a different story. Or last one of these, my personal favorite. It's like saying I had a sandwich for lunch when what you had was a large pastrami deluxe from Mickey's Famous Deli in Hermosa Beach. People, that is not, yeah, that's on, it's not a sandwich, that is a foretaste of heaven. <laughs> Last minute birthday gifts, buy me a sandwich. So to say we're just in a belief system, uh, yes, it's true, but my goodness, that's limiting. That's too small. That's too thin. That is absolutely not catching what we are. We are people who have been captured by a story, by a bigger story, a story that begins, that has a drama that unfolds, that we, at this moment, look forward to a culmination and that we live in a a dramatic moment right now as part of that story. Uh, The big story of the scriptures, if you've ever been on a plane and you have the window seat and there's some awkward person leaning over trying to look out the window as you're landing, I am that person. I love a big picture view. I love to see where everything is. I love to see the topography. Give me the bird's eye view of something. I have to have that to even start understanding it, whether it's a concept, a language, a martial art. I'm a three-stripe white belt in jujitsu. just letting you know. And so when I think about our, what, what it is that we're a part of, what is that story, um, I'm always wanting to go back to the big picture. So if I'm having a coffee or some other beverage with someone and they ask me, hey, so tell me about your faith. Tell me about Christianity. What is it? I'm not going to be like, so where are you going to go when you die? Now, that's a fine question. And for some of us, you know, like maybe that's more pressing than for others. But it's a good question to ask, where am I going to go when I die? And you would think, based on maybe many interactions that you may or may not have had with, with Christians, that that is the primary question Christianity is here to answer. Well, let me tell you something. If this is our scriptures, these are our sacred texts, you have about, like, this much of it 
See that? That says little to absolutely nothing about that. Like, nothing. Go in the Hebrew Bible and try to build a theology of afterlife. A robust, it's going to be very hard to do. Matt Engel, one of, I think, our resident Old Testament scholars, he can walk you through that after this service at some point. There's just not a lot. Now, New Testament, there's a lot more said about uh, what we would call afterlife or, or, or um, yeah, yeah, sure, what happens when you die. There's, there's that in there. But it is not actually a preoccupation. So when we start there, it's actually a weird place to start. If we start, however, where the scriptures, where the story starts, to me, this thing goes from 2D to 3D. It goes from black and white to color in, in a really profound way. So uh, if you want to, you can flip over to Genesis 1.1. It's on page 1. Should be helpful for many of us. And it starts in a very famous line many of you have heard before. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then this Ancient, inspired cosmology, the story of how things came to be, unfolds. And it unfolds in a way that might sound strange to us if we were writing a creation story today. I'd be like, I want to talk about quantum physics. I want to talk about like dimensions or cells or like suns and solar systems. I want to learn about that. I want to talk about that stuff. But the interesting part about our sacred tradition is it starts where it wants to start. And it directs our gaze exactly where it thinks we need to be looking. So the story of creation takes up about a page, maybe two. And all the rest of this giant collection of ancient Near Eastern and ancient Mediterranean inspired texts, all the rest of this is walking through how God is undoing something that went wrong. How God is making all things new. So it's really, really answering some questions that sometimes we don't really think to ask. And it starts off in this beautiful garden imagery, this ancient Near Eastern um, uh, literary style that's telling us truths. And it says, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light that it was good. Good Hebrew term, tov. Everyone say tov. 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 Come on, Irv Doc's got it, man. Yeah, Irvin. It's good. And it keeps going. So it has its rhythm to it. And God says, let there be a separation of the waters. And then let the water under the sky be gathered in one place. And then it says, and God saw it, the seas, and said that it was Tov, good job. Someone here is using the Hebrew. They learned it was good. It was tov. It was good. And it continues on. Vegetation, God saw, verse 12, that it was tov. Yes. And then it says God creates uh, the the stars and continues on. uh, God saw that it was tov. It was good. And it kind of goes on. uh, This rhythm of God created and it was tov. And God created and it was tov. And God created, and it was tov. And then verse 27, God creates um, humans in his image. That is, something we are made up of something. Something is implanted in us. Something is uh, essential to who we are that is unlike sand or wood or trees or gerbils. 
right? There is something about us where we relate to God. We bear the image of God. And then, the end of the chapter, God saw all he made, that it was tov. And then it adds another word, tov ma'od. Everyone say tov, tov ma'od. Yeah, it was very Good. So it almost has a rhythm to it. It is a stylized rendition. It's not a uh, security camera footage of creation. That is not what Genesis 1 and 2 are doing at all. It is rather a narrative telling us some incredibly important things about what we need to know. Namely, God created it was good. God created it was good. God created it was very good. It's a nice beat to it. Very good. And then something happens. The Bible rushes to it, Genesis 3. It rushes with a, like, haste to get to the thing that we all know, we all recognize. When I was at uh, UCLA finishing my Ph.D., I was a teaching, like, oh, oh, there we go, a whoop right there. Uh, I was finishing, some USC people have just tuned out. I'm done. I have nothing more to hear from this man. Exactly. <laughs> I would taught this, or I was a teaching fellow for this course called uh, History 4, the Introduction to the History of Religions. We would go over 10 major religious traditions in 10 weeks. One thing that every major world religion shares, and I would even add secular humanism or forms of atheism to this, it is that there is a problem. There is something wrong or something missing with the world, and there is an ought to human existence. There's an oughtness. Okay? Something has to be resolved or pursued or learned or added or subtracted to make things right again. Unlike trees, which have a beautiful existence of just, I'm here, I'm a tree, I grow. Or peacocks, right, that walk around and they're loud and they're beautiful. And by the way, the Me Too movement has not hit the peacock community yet. I'm just going to say, living around them, something needs to be done. <laughs> Peacocks don't wake up in the morning and go, am I just doing the same thing every day? Where am I going in my life? Like, this is hollow. Something's wrong. They don't. They're just doing their thing. They're living their life. Pooping all over my front yard. And human beings know there's a problem. The scripture's answer to that is there was a a rebellion. Things were made good, good, very good. And human beings ball up their fists at the creator and essentially say, we'll direct this thing called life on our own. We have some great, fresh ideas we'd like to try out. Thank you, God. If you want to be a part of that, that's cool. But we have some good ideas. So thanks, but no thanks. We're moving forward. And this creates this infection, this poison, what uh, you'll hear in church circles or in scripture, this term sometimes called sin or rebellion, that infects everything and brokenness. And then the rest of the scriptures, you got one chapter for that. The rest of the scriptures are full of God refusing to give up on that which he created. Refusing to trash it, throw it in the incinerator, and start something in some other dimension, some other universe somewhere where it might go better. Rather, the rest of the story is God selecting a people, saying, I'm going to choose a particular people that are going to, I'm going to teach who I am. I'm going to clear things up. They're going to know me. And they're going to share my glory, my story with the world. And out of that people, eventually, 
the ultimate solution, which we celebrated last week at Easter. God himself dwelling with us, taking on our sin, taking on the rebellion, becoming the black hole for all of it, and making it possible for us to be one with him again. And it's in the actual story of the fall, in the narrative of that story of what we call the fall, that I think we see the blueprints of what everything was made for, of why we're here. This is big picture. This is the story. And it says this in Genesis 3, Genesis 3, 9, 6 through 9. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She gave some to her husband who was with her. He ate it. The eyes of both of them were open. They realized they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together, made coverings for themselves. When the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called out and said, where are you? Now, I don't think what this story is trying to tell us is that God has feet and is walking around and is losing track of people. Where'd you go? Where'd you go? Come on. Rather, what is being illustrated in this gorgeous imagery here, what is being illustrated is a picture of what was going on prior to the fall. It gives us a picture back. And that is, it looks like there was a rhythm of life where God wanted to dwell in this pristine, beautiful creation with his, his creations, his children. He wanted to dwell in the garden in the cool of the day and go on walks and enjoy leisurely strolls. Like, what is the purpose of life? The scriptural answer, the Christian quote-unquote answer, is right there. That is what we were designed to do. Enjoying unity and harmony with God, with one another, and with this earth in, in, in a, an amazing, an amazingly unglamorous picture of just walking and being with the Lord. So this is the big picture. This is the big story. That's what was created. That's what it was created for. It goes wrong, desperately wrong. And God takes the first step, second step, and 20th step to bring about a solution that we now have an opportunity, John 3, 16, that Jazz quoted, right, to entrust ourselves back to God and say, Lord, I am yours. And thus enjoy Zoe Ionios, eternal life. The God sent his one and only son that whoever entrusts themselves to him will not perish, but will have Zoe Ionios, eternal life. And in John 17, 3, another passage that gets a little bit less airtime than John 3, 16, the same term, Zoe Ionios, is used. And in that passage, Jesus says, this is... Zoe Ionios. If you wonder what eternal life is, Jesus answers, this is eternal life that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. And that's not, again, cognitive knowledge of. I know the ontology of God. I can describe his attributes and characteristics like some academic essay. Rather, this is a knowledge, an intimate relational knowledge of God. So what does that tell me? That tells me you don't have to wait till you die to begin living fully. It's not a duration of life. It's a quality of life that is reconnected with the creator 
enjoying relationship with him and with others. And the very last passage of the scriptures, well, second to last, but almost the last, I read it last week, in Revelation 21, this incredible picture of where things are going. So if we're in the drama, it begins somewhere. Problems ensue. Problems are being solved, and we are now looking forward to this picture. It's Revelation 21, 3 through 5. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. So this is the story that we are captured by and living into. It is so much more robust than a checklist of do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Okay, you're a Christian. It is so much more beautiful, majestic than that. So that's what Christians aren't this last. That was my big point. And you can see now why I've chopped my third point off. But my second point, which is shorter and sweeter and I will land the plane with, uh, Christians aren't. Christians aren't moral people. Some of you are like, I know that. Like, look around, right? I know y'all ain't moral people. We're not moral people. Now, this is really important to underscore. And you're like, some of you, what? What are you talking about? No, Christians are not moral people. It's kind of our brand, right, in a lot of popular discourse, a lot of media. Like, we're moral people. We're the moral ones. The moral majority, right? This political term that some of us might remember from the 80s. That's what Christians are. No, we're not. We're actually not moral people. We're adopted children learning new house rules. We are adopted children learning new house rules. We are not moral people. Let's unpack this one. So I'm driving into L.A. with my kids a few years ago with Michelle and Brixton at the time. I like to do adventures in L.A. with them. So during the summer when it's June gloom, I'm like, let's go out of the June gloom. Let's go into the city. Let's go to Chinatown. Let's go down to... Um, the market district. Let's go check it out. Let's see what's in this gorgeous metropolis of Los Angeles. And I'm on the 110 freeway, naturally in gridlock traffic. It's hot out. I'm in my car, which the AC is spotty at best. The kids are there, a little irritated because I had all this energy. Let's go, let's go, let's go, and stop and wait as I watch the toll lane. Boo-boo, 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 and I pray curses over each car. I'm kidding. I know some of you use it. Bless you, bless you. And I'm waiting, and I start hearing some noise. I'm like, what is that noise? It sounds like a bullhorn. Oh, boy. And I, it gets closer. In traffic, some dude had hooked up a headset as he's driving, and then out of the back window of his car, it's down, and the bullhorn thing is out facing traffic, right? It's sitting there as he's in traffic, and he is reading this quote from the Bible. But fornication, all uncleanliness, covetousness, let it not be named among you, neither filthiness or foolish talking or jesting. For ye know this, that no whoremonger... What is a whoremonger, by the way? Can someone help? We need to do a sermon series on whoremongers. I don't know what that is. Nor unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. And I'm listening to this. I'm like, oh, no. Like traffic, heat, blowhorn, and this verse, this does not get worse. And my daughter goes, Daddy, is he, I think she's like four or something. He's talking about Jesus, right? That's good, right? And I'm like, 
yeah, it's kind of good, I guess. And I was like, why am I struggling to say, yes, if he's reading scripture, it must be good. As I reflected on it, the reason why I could not give a wholehearted embracing, first of all, it's a terrible methodology to blow horn on the freeway. But secondly, what, why was I not excited? It's because he is reading something without the deep foundation it stands upon. He's reading verses and excluding the robust foundation that it stands upon. The logical order of Christian morality is this. It is identity, reality, and then the house rules. It is, this is who you are. This is what has happened already, been done, who you now are. Therefore, live it out. If you, the great example of this to me in Ephesians, and Jazz pointed this out this week. He's given some real encouraging texts. If you're ever going to preach, get Jazz on your prayer team, man. He is, he is on it. Ephesians 1, it starts off, Paul begins this letter to these Christians, and I'll just read a quick snippet. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. How many spiritual blessings? Like, like every, like every one, like that one and that one and that one, and don't forget about that one. Every spiritual blessing has been given, all of it. You're sitting on a boatload of spiritual blessings, all, todos. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless. You're holy and blameless. In love, he predestined us for adoption. Us for adoption through Jesus Christ. And it goes on, it just goes on with this long, unbroken set of Greek clauses with no period, no stop. It's just like one long Greek breath, run on sentence, which we can do in Greek, you can't do in English, about all that is true of you already. And then he says, my prayer for you now is that you would be able to that the eyes of your heart would be open to see all that's already been done for you. His prayer for the church isn't, I want good little boys and good little girls. God wants you to be a bit more moral. Rather, what he says is, I want you to know what's true of you. I just pray that the terabytes, the bandwidth expands in your heart that you can actually take in who you are. Do you know who you are? Do you know what's happened? He's asking. And then in chapter 4, 5, and 6 come the house rules. I'll close with this story that helps me understand it. Uh, as Jasmine mentioned, uh, Bray and I, we've been foster parents for uh, over, gosh, a year and a, few, and a few months. So we've been doing it for a little while. And our philosophy as foster parents is simply this. We're all in all the way the second a child's put in our home. You can't guard your heart. These kids have had enough. They have had enough not being loved. Let's put it that way. Or have you had enough danger or neglect or pain or fear or aloneness? They don't need another placement where people are guarding their hearts. So that's kind of, we're like, all right, Lord, we're all in. Boom. Come heck or high water, since I'm in a Christian group, I'll say it that way. And because we're Christians, we're moral, right? No, that's terrible. 
And so our first placement, y'all remember Nikia and Sade? You remember Nikia and Sade, these two beautiful little girls that were with us? We had them only for about a month. And I'm pretty sure Nikia and Sade have never had nutritious food. It just wasn't part of their reality, right? And, and so uh, it looks a lot more like potato chips and TV, and that's it, right? And, and, and a lot of times missing food. And so they're with us for a week. We're just trying to bathe them in love and, and help them feel comfortable and just know. I go, you, you, are, you are in our home. You're, you're my little girls right now. You're, you're our little girls, right? You're foster daughters, but we don't even need to bring that up. You're just our, our little girls in our home right here. You're with us. We love you. And that will not change. There's no circumstances where that's going to change on our end, okay? Things can change, but for a three-year-old, she just needs to know she's ours. We love her. And so we're like, let's get a little broccoli in the mix, you know, let's just start incorporating slowly but surely broccoli, right? How many of y'all like broccoli? Nobody. It's a part of the fall. Put your hands, put your hands down, down, down. You, may, you leave, you get out of here. No, I'm kidding. We love you. Welcome. First time here. He's like, oh, no. You got cookies, so that's good. So good. You like broccoli. You're healthy. I get it, all right? But broccoli's the devil. It's terrible food. It tastes disgusting, I think. And for a three-year-old, that is not a thing she was enjoying. So she takes a bite of the broccoli. And we're like, what do you think? And she's just like, nope. This is not good. And I'm like, you got to eat the broccoli. We had these delicious chocolate-covered pretzels. Big, delicious chocolate-covered pretzels that someone had brought. And we're like, you eat the broccoli, you'll get the chocolate-covered pretzel. And she's like, all right. So she does what we all did as kids, which is you leave it in your mouth to just kind of putrefy and, like, ferment in there, right? As if somehow it's like, just swallow it. It'll be done. And so I'm like, okay, how about some water? Water doesn't do the trick. Finally, I'm like, do you want this? It's going to be so good. You have to do it. Swallow the food. So more water, and she opens her mouth, and it's gone. Gone. I'm like, oh, I'm so proud of you. Here is a chocolate-covered pretzel. Enjoy this. She devours this giant chocolate-covered pretzel. She's doing the happy dance as she's eating it. And then afterwards, we're all, like, cheering for her. You did so good. She leans over in the kitchen, opens her mouth. All the broccoli, all of it comes out. She had a cargo hold in her mouth somewhere where she stored the broccoli so as to avoid detection. Somehow, water and eating a full pretzel, she was still able to preserve the broccoli and then spit it on the floor. And so I'm like, I'm like, baby girl, I love you. But in this house, we don't spit our broccoli on the floor, right? In this house, we eat our broccoli before we get our dessert. That's what we do. That's, that's part of being in this family. But I love you. If I had ever said, you're out of this house, it's the last straw. You spit your broccoli out. That is so disrespectful. That is so rude and gross. Get out of this house. Never in a billion years would that even come close to happening in our world. If she spit her broccoli out every single night that we had her, I would love her as much. I'd come up with some sort of a netting system for the broccoli, but I would love her as much. Because she's my baby girl, and I love her, and that will not change. And I am a fallen, messed up, oftentimes human being. Our God says, you are his children. And so when he gives us house rules, and, and we do as followers of Jesus, we have some, some things that we live towards, we live into, some truths, some what we just call morals that we're going to live out. But it's not some sort of a gymnastic gauntlet that we want to pass so as to stay in God's graces. Rather, it's God looking at us going, I love you. You're in my family, so let's live like it. So when we screw up, which some of you do screw up, how many of y'all sinned this week? All right, what'd you do? What'd you do, Gary? I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. We're not going to do that. We're not going to go there. <laughs> Gary's like, I got to leave. 
<laughs> so horrible. When you sin, you don't go whiplash yourself 50 times and say, I'm so bad, I don't deserve to be called your son. Lord, I'm walking away. You look in a mirror and you go, Lord, first you go, Lord God, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a total knucklehead. I'm a total knucklehead. You look in the mirror and say, I'm a child of God. And I'm going to live like it right now. And that is the difference between being a moral person and living as an adopted child with new house rules. And that, my friends, is who we are as followers of Jesus. And so I hope that this week you could imagine what my final point would have been about, point three. Because it would have been the best one, I'm sure, of all of these. No, I hope that this week we can all sort of really marinate in that. That we're called and captured by a bigger story. And that we are children of God living out, improving on what it means to follow Jesus as a child of God. And that every interaction that you have, just know that we, there's this exciting opportunity you truly get. It's not to download a message. It might come with words. It might come with phrases and ideas. But it's to be that counter-narrative. That when folks are going to go, oh, I know what Christians are all about. I know how they roll. I know how they hurt other people. I know the, the way that they're not funny, not creative, not thoughtful, or they're silly, or they're weird. We're a little weird. Or they're mean. That they go, but not that, not Mark, man. He's different. Kathleen, she's, she's different than that, though. She's not, you know, Matt's not that way. JP, okay, he's cool. But you know the rest of the Christians, though. Right? And the more we're able to bring that into the atmospheres and into the highways and byways of our lives, the more people are going to hopefully see Jesus and see what we've been captured by. And so that is what excites me about um, following Jesus. Uh, next week, Todd is bringing... He's back! He is risen! Um, we're not a cult. We don't think he's the Messiah, by the way. Definitely not. <laughs> if you want reasons why, I could, tell, I could give you some after the service. But, uh, but he's going to be bringing a series out of the journey he's been on. And for those of you that have been a little closer to the action there, or you've seen the journey he's been on, I'm telling you, I don't know if I've ever been as excited about a series as what is coming up. So I just want to encourage everyone, you got someone in your life going through some hard things, you're going through some hard things, bring them along and say, you're just going to hear some stories. You're going to hear from someone in the midst of um, tough realities, seeing beautiful things of God. Lord, thanks for this day. Thank you, God, for this amazing opportunity to worship you. Think about what it means to follow you. Think about the great story that we're called into. Be reminded about that story and hopefully recalibrate ourselves a bit and knowing we are children of God. We're not performing for you or for anyone else. We're living out of that truth. So as we now worship you and as we go to communion, Lord, and remember your body given for us, your blood poured out for us, that is why we can say we are children of God because you moved first. You fixed that which was wrong. And I worship you for that, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. We do this as your followers, as Christians, and as those curious about you. Amen. So as the worship continues, we'll have some communion tables uh, on either side. And you can feel free to grab a piece of bread representing the body of Christ.